Good morning again, and uh, we're glad that you're here with us this morning, and uh, that we have an opportunity to read from God's Word, to study God's Word, and to study uh, what it says over the past few weeks. If you're just joining us, we've actually been going through a study of the book of Nehemiah, and today we are all the way up to chapter 5. One of the things that surprised me the most about this study if you're not familiar with what's taking place in Nehemiah, is he's recounting, or this is the historical record of the second, really the third attempt of the nation of Israel to come back to Jerusalem and rebuild the city after um, the Babylonian captivity. What has surprised me the most, and I, I mean this genuinely as I've studied, I knew there was opposition that took place with this big effort that, that the, the people were going through. I am surprised at how often it has come up that the real opposition has not come from the outside world or from neighboring cities or villages, but the biggest oppositions actually come from within. As we start chapter 5 this morning, or, or start reading from there and studying from Nehemiah chapter 5, our focus is on this internal opposition. And so... Then, if you will, bow with me in prayer. If you want to open your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 5, we'll go ahead and start there. But first, we'll, we'll pray before we look into God's Word. Father in heaven, I thank you so much for the opportunity to come to you this morning, to open your Word and to study it together, to, to be here with your people and to, to have the opportunity that we have. Lord, as we prepare to look into what you have recorded we come to this place expectantly, uh, ready for the truth of your law to impact our lives and to change us and to help reveal things to us and perhaps even to convict our hearts and even be a part of the process of conforming our lives to an image of yourself. And Lord, I pray that you would help to make that possible. I pray that you would soften my heart this morning, soften all of our hearts this morning as we read your word, that we would be ready to respond to it. Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes to the awesome truths found in your law. In Jesus' heavenly name I pray, amen. With your Bibles open before you, please read along with me as I read out loud. The Bible says in Nehemiah chapter 5, starting in verse 1, now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, our children as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. I took counsel with myself and brought the charges against the nobles and the officials, and I said to them, You are exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them. And I said to them, We, as far as we are able, have brought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. 
Ought you not to walk in the fear of the Lord our God to prevent the taunts of the nations around us? The nations, our enemies. Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and their, the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, We will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priest and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen. And praised the Lord, and the people did as they had promised. When we come to Nehemiah chapter 5, where we were last week, we found that the people of Israel had just really reached a milestone. They, in the face of opposition, now surrounded on all sides by the neighboring civilizations or neighboring communities who had decided amongst themselves to oppose the effort in Jerusalem to rebuild the wall, had taken efforts to not only protect themselves, but to rely on God's provisions in doing so. And because the people had a mind to work, the wall was rebuilt to half of its original height. Half of its, we're halfway there. We've reached a milestone. And we get here, and what we find is these people who are part of the, the, the city of Jerusalem have made up their mind to go out into public, I, I would assume here because Nehemiah was working, to take to the streets and to raise an issue that has come up. What is the issue? Well, financially, they're strapped. The, the, the economy has somewhat collapsed in on itself. And these people who, who were working to, to help support the effort to rebuild the wall and everything else, they, they found themselves in a terrible position. They weren't able to pay their debts. And in fact, there was no hope of them being able to repay any of these debts. As a consequence, some of their children have been sold into slavery. Maybe wives have been taken as second wives or the daughters have been taken as as second wives. The worst part of all of this, though, is it wasn't Sanballat and Tobiah, the Arabs and the Ashdodites or the Amorites who were causing this hardship on the people. It was their own brothers. It was the Jewish nobles inside of the city of Jerusalem that were causing this problem for them. It's as if the church had turned in on itself and we were actually causing conflict for each other. This is a terrible position to look in. Now, when I, when I was looking at this, one of the things that stands out quite a bit is how do we get to this place of economic decay so quickly? If we jump ahead in Nehemiah, we find and we're told how long the actual wall rebuilding project took. It was only 52 days. I think it's unlikely that we found so much economic decay in 52 days. Instead, I think what had happened, we know that there was a drought that's mentioned in our text this morning, the rebuilding effort. I think these things were the straws that broke the camel's back. 
There would have been some burden on the people to be in this position in the first place. And we know that the rebuilding project would have added to that burden. As a consequence, manpower in the fields or outside of the city would have been diverted. People would have been working on rebuilding the wall. Workers would have been separated from other sources of income. Remember, because of the external conflict or these people who had devised plans to cause confusion within Jerusalem, the men were instructed by Nehemiah not to put up their swords and not to leave the city at night. So those who were working to rebuild the walls, they didn't have an option to to have any other monetary sources of income. Farmers who were not inside of the city would have had a difficult time supplying the city with grain. The wall's been rebuilt. And where, where everywhere else there's upheaval and, and stones being moved, this is a major construction area. So it would have been difficult for them to come in. And then add on the economic problems of now our neighbors or those who we would have normally traded with, the Ashdodites, the Amorites, Well, we're not trading with them because we're at a state of war. And so now there's kind of this global issue. Things have really picked up and the crisis has just kind of fuel's been thrown on the fire. I wonder what the people's motivation is when they came to Nehemiah with these claims. Nehemiah, we, uh, we have this major issue. We're in debt. We can't take care of ourselves. In fact, I'm having to borrow money just to pay the tax. This is a major burden. On top of all of that, I'm having to sell my children into slavery in order to, to, to do every, do just to get by. This is, this is a desperate time. When they come to Nehemiah with this, some commentators, as I was studying, said that they were doing this as a point of going on strike. But I, I don't think that's the case. I think Nehemiah was ignorant of what was taking place and they wanted him to know about it, frankly, because what was being done was wrong. Instead of fighting uh, opposition from the outside, they were having to deal with people who meant harm against them from the inside. The worst part of all of this is that the injustice comes from within. Verse 5 tells us that it is our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, those who are exacting usury against them. Our children are as their children, yet we're being forced to sell them as slaves. The real offense is that it wasn't the circumstances around Jerusalem that had made the people vulnerable. It was God's people taking advantage of God's people. We said in the course of this study that any time uh, God's work is done God's way, we'll find opposition. There will be forces at work that would prefer to stand against God's work being accomplished. That's inevitable, and it's unavoidable. How heartbreaking is it when those forces don't come, you know, we think of Ephesians chapter, you know, we think of the spiritual warfare, or we think about a secular world that would stand opposed to living life the way that God would want us to live our life. How heartbreaking is it when that comes from within? The end of verse 9 tells us that we have these forces against us that are deciding to oppose God's word. And and I love what what Nehemiah says in his accusation against the people at the end of verse 9. Ought you not to walk in fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations of our enemies? 
Look around us. This outside world that stands opposed to living life the way that God would have us live life. The moral issues that we stand on and that we're convicted about. When that outside world looks inward to the church, they don't see anything different. When the outside forces of Jerusalem looked in, they said, these people aren't any different than us. They're looking to make a quick buck the same way that we would make a quick buck. And they don't care who they step on or who is affected as a consequence of it. When Nehemiah first came and he started this building project, there was immediately opposition. Sanballat's not a new character. He was there in chapter uh, chapter 3. And, and whenever we were looking at Sambalat's claims, Nehemiah's response to him in public when he's casting the vision before the people is, you do not have a claim to Jerusalem. We are the ones that God has provisioned to be here. And you're not going to stand in the way of it either. But now, as Sambalat and Tobiah, the Amorites and the Astrodites and all of these different people look inward to Jerusalem, they see the exact same inbiting, backbiting, and they see, see opposition coming from within. They don't have to do anything. The work's already being done for them. The issue of unity as we look at Nehemiah's leadership practices through this book and through this historical record, it's significantly emphasized. Unity as we move forward. Unity as we seek God's will. Unity as we make preparations for one another. So Nehemiah hears the news that this sort of usury, and by the way, just to give clarity here, what I mean by usury, it implies that these people, uh, these Jewish nobles, were charging interest at such a rate that it was impossible for them to repay. We're not talking about a normal interest rate, but we're talking about them charging an absurd interest rate. It's truly trapping people in the bondage of slavery. And, and just for clarity, what we can Nehemiah has some accusations before them, but if you actually wanted to take the time to jump back to the law that the people were operating from, you could look at Leviticus 25. We could look at Deuteronomy 23 where the wall is restated. God's word actually condemns and says that the Jewish people are not supposed to charge other Jewish people interest. Recorded in the law, so they're violating God's law in what they're doing. If we look at God's law, it was okay to lend money, but if it was a Jew lending to another Jew, they weren't supposed to charge them interest. It was okay to charge interest to somebody who wasn't a Jew. And, and Nehemiah makes that point. When Nehemiah gets this word, and he finds out what's happening, and he hears the complaints of the people, his reaction is... What? God's word said, I was very angry. I was angry. And so he flew off the handle and he went to these nobles and he said, what you're doing is wrong and you need to get right with God and you need to, to fix this and make reparations. No, that's not the case. Nehemiah gets angry well, what we find here is that he has a righteous indignation. In hearing God's word, uh, or I'm sorry, in, in, in being angry, 
Nehemiah does not sin. He tempers himself and he controls his reaction. James writes that we should be angry and yet not sin. What is it that Nehemiah does that makes this anger righteous? And I wonder if any of us could ever say that whenever we get angry, it's a righteous sort of anger. I think I could. 1% of the time, whenever I'm angry, it's a righteous anger. The other 99% of the time, it's probably not so righteous. What makes that distinction, though? What makes it different? Whenever we're angry, genuinely and, and righteously angry, what makes it such is that it is God's glory that we're angry, angry about defending. We get angry about God's will being broken, or we get angry about uh, something violating what God has given to us, or we get angry about God not being honored. That's a righteous anger, because it comes from a righteous place. Now, the problem with the 1% of the time that I am righteously angry is I normally open my mouth and make the mistake of entering into sin immediately. My righteous anger is no longer righteous because I've acted unrighteously. The Bible says that Nehemiah took counsel with himself. He had a private meeting of one. And in his anger, he did not sin. Instead, he controlled and tempered his anger so that he would respond accordingly. He controls himself. He consults with himself. And on the occasion that we are righteously indignant, instead of opening our mouths to lose our righteousness... We should allow ourselves to take counsel and to temper our reaction. When we allow ourselves to be offensive with no real compassion towards people, we aren't actually speaking to the issue that we have a right to be upset about to begin with. There's a flip side to this coin. Oftentimes, whenever we talk about Uh, standing in opposition or, or getting indignantly angry and we say, well, it's better for me not to say anything in this situation because I don't want to be offensive and actually undermine what I'm trying to accomplish. The flip side is that doesn't mean that you should avoid confrontation altogether. It doesn't mean that you should... Let that stop you from saying what needs to be said. And it doesn't stop Nehemiah. After taking this moment to consult with himself, he brought the charges against the nobles and the officials, and he said to them, you are exacting interest. Another translation says, you are exacting usury, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them. I would find here that Nehemiah makes this confrontation to the individuals first in verse 7, and he doesn't get the reaction that he would expect. Not much changes, and so the next step is he brings a great assembly against them, and he says to them in verse 8, We, as far as we are able, have brought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. And he brings it back to the bigger picture. Don't you see what's happened? Jerusalem has been taken captive by the Babylonians. The Persian Empire has conquered Babylon, and we've been given this freedom to come back. 
And in the course of all of this, we have made great efforts to buy back our Jewish brothers so that they wouldn't be slaves anymore, that we can return to Jerusalem. And here we are rebuilding, undergoing this great project together, supporting one another. And because we've had a great mind to work, the wall's been rebuilt to half of its height. And you are putting us on the backward slide because you're making us sell our brothers back into slavery that we might buy them back. By the way, It is against God's word to take a Jew as a slave, just like it's against God's law to to exact interest against another Jew. There's confrontation that takes place. I don't know why. Confrontation seems to be the one part of an issue that is most avoided, especially in the church. We talk about unity, and I've been talking a great amount about unity as we've gone through this this study of the book of Nehemiah because it keeps popping up over and over again. That it's essential for God's people in in order to be productive and in order to move on the mission of God that's been given to us. It's essential that there is a spirit of, of unity amongst the church. That when we're working together, that we're getting past whatever differences we might have, that we're united on the one thing that does join us together, that we are brothers and sisters who share in our identification with Christ. We have to set some of our pride aside to do that. What, What is this response that's become so common that in a spirit of maintaining unity, we actually don't bring up differences or problems at all. Instead, we become spineless and, and nothing, we don't actually stand for anything. And I mean this in a serious sense. In a, in a sense, in, in a way that we maintain unity, we fail to actually have confrontation with one another. And good confrontation, not confrontation for the sake of confrontation, but confrontation to actually repair relationships and grow closer to one another. I have a, as an introvert, I have a small group of friends. My best friend has been my best friend since fourth grade. There's not a lot of things that we have done that made us grow closer together, except when we fought. Because when we fought, we fought hard. And there were words. And, and there were real violations against each other that we had to, to apologize for and make, in some cases, even reparations for. But we've been best friends since fourth grade. And at this point, I don't think there's anything that could come between us. But we only got there because we did the work of having conflict with one another. Forbes magazine posted, I think it was two weeks ago in an article, this quote. In a room where people unanimously maintain a conspiracy of silence, one word of truth sounds like a pistol shot. When we allow being silent to become the priority so that we can maintain a fake sense of unity. What we're actually giving into 
is we're locking ourselves up in, in a, such a way that we can't talk with anyone. Relationships can't grow deeper. We can't grow together because we can't be vulnerable with one another. Instead, everyone has a weird guard put up around themselves so that they can protect their, their image from one another. This happens in the church, this happens in families, and this happens uh, even in our societies and our cultures, and it certainly happened in Jerusalem. When it happens in families, we find children spending more time in their bedrooms than coming out and spending time with one another. Parents avoiding uh, conversations that they need to have with one another, decisions being avoided. When it happens in the church, you find a stagnated group of believers who come together to worship in a room with other people, but they're worshiping in an individual way. That's not the point of coming to church. We're supposed to be worshiping in an individual way every day and every moment. The point of corporate worship is that we are worshiping in a corporate way with people. And we cannot do that when we allow conflict to be avoided at the sake of maintaining a facade of unity. Nehemiah has carefully weighed his complaints and what has made him angry, and he's brought his charges against these Jewish nobles. I assume it's the same nobles we read about in chapter 3 that didn't quite support the efforts to begin with. He says, you are exacting usury. He charges them with levying these unbelievable, unbelievable levels of interest. He tells them that to charge interest is wrong, and to charge this much interest, well, that's really wrong. There appears to be no reaction. So he calls this great assembly. He appeals to them. He explains to them that what they're doing is wrong. He also highlights and underlines why it's wrong according to God's law. He brings evidence. And like I said, I'm not going to spend time jumping back to Leviticus and Deuteronomy. You can feel free to do that later this week if you'd like. What stands out to me here is that as a church, we spend a lot of time pointing out all of the things that are wrong in this world. That's wrong, and this is wrong, and you're living life wrong, and society is supporting you living things wrong, and, and the way that things are structured is wrong. But when the world looks at the church, more often than not, they see the exact same problem here. They don't see anything different. They see the same facades. They see the same greed. They see the same wretchedness. They see Christians shooting their own wounded. I have a, just a question, and this is kind of getting off topic. When's the last time a Christian brother or sister has come to you and made a confession before you? Actually confess what was going on in their life and how you could be praying for them. Don't you think it's weird that that's such an uncommon occurrence? 
Isn't it weird that that's something that doesn't happen, that, that the Bible clearly instructs us to do, to go to one another, to allow each other to carry one another's burdens? And yet I can't remember the last time someone came to me with a confession. Earlier this summer, we took the youth on a retreat and we described a situation where somebody would have a relationship with somebody who loved them and that they could go to and that they could confess their sins to. And we had one young gentleman in that retreat when asked, does that sound like something that you would want? He said, no. He might have been the only honest person there. We're afraid to be vulnerable. Maybe that's why we're afraid to have conflict with one another. We don't actually want to grow together. We just want it to look like we're growing together. But the real significance is measurable and it's tangible. I don't know how many times I've said this, but when you walk into a church, you can tell immediately if a church is moving in a direction where they are passionate about the mission that God has given them or if that church is just there to keep going through the motions. As a new visitor, it doesn't take long to feel that out. And I've had so many friends come to me and say, that's why I don't go to church. I haven't found a church that's actually doing what the church is supposed to be there for. And and my complaint or my argument against them is always, why have you abandoned ship so quickly? Why don't you do something to change it? If God's given you such a burden that you can see such a problem so clearly, why don't you do something to change it? Why don't you be a part of the solution rather than running away from fixing what is so important? Problems really that you don't think the mission that the church has is that important. If it's not valuable enough for you to stay, it's valuable, you, you can leave it. You, you don't see the value of the church at all. And the real problem there is that you haven't studied your Bible enough to see how important the church is to God. Nehemiah brings these claims that nobles promise that they're going to do what Nehemiah says, but he doesn't stop there. Nehemiah is a shrewd character in the Bible. He gets this promise from them, and he brings the priest in, and he says, okay, now that you've promised, let's get this assembly together. Come up front, and you're going to make a promise in front of everyone that you're going to do. You already promised, but now you're going to make, it's going to take an oath. So they take this oath. They bring the, the priest in. They come, and they swear, and then Nehemiah makes this third claim. He takes his robe, and he shakes out all of the folds in it, What's he doing there? But inside of all of those folds, he's letting all the dust fall out. And he says, as I've shaken out the dust from my robes, so may God shake out anyone who breaks out or breaks the promises that we have made here today. This is a curse. It's what it is. He's making a, a visual depiction of a curse, this imprecatory will that if you've repented and you've made this promise, you have nothing to say against the charges I've brought against you, and instead you've said that you're going to make reparations and make right on what we've said you're going to do. You're going to live generously. If you don't do that, I pray that God would shake out everything that you have and leave you emptied. 
And look at the end of verse 13. Because the assembly's response is amazing. All of the people said, Amen. They all agreed, may that be the case. It is true. The people are united once again, saying, Amen, even though there was division between them because Nehemiah went through the effort of tempering his anger, allowing it to be a righteous indignation, confronting the problem head on, not running around and and talking to other people about it, but dealing with the issue head on immediately. All of the people are united again through confession. They've admitted guilt and wrongdoing. And the people can say amen. And they praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. When I find the people or the group of people here saying that they've praised the Lord, I I imagine them all singing hallelujah. Praises that God is the, the one who's in control, that's made provisions for them, that this issue can finally be put to bed and that we can move on and that we, our unity can be more than a facade. That our unity can actually mean we're people living life together who are passionate about God, who have been given the same burdens and the same callings, that have been placed in the same place geographically, that we might support the mission that God has given us. But before we can get there, the people have to say, Amen. Before we can get to a place of singing these praises, the people have to say, Amen. There has to be this confession that takes place. So how do we get there? What are we supposed to do with sin in our lives whenever God reveals it to us? I'm worried this sermon might lack some application. Can I give you four points of what you're supposed to do whenever God reveals sin to you in your life? One, confess it. Acknowledge it's there. Promise that God would help you not do it again. To turn away from it. That's what repentance means. Third, and I think we neglect this, go public with the issue and let people know that you're done with whatever you're confessing. It's a strange thing to avoid. But whether you do it with one individual or you do it with two, God instructs us to go public so that we can share our brokenness and our needs with one another, that we can truly be united. The problem with this is we can't get here if there's conflict or confrontation that needs to take place because we'll always avoid it. Fourth step, go forward in your life with the knowledge that God is behind us, with the urgency of Nehemiah's curse, that he would shake out anyone who breaks these promises. Sometimes in our Christian lives, as we move towards holiness, we place a great deal of emphasis on morality, and that's never the case. Our, our goal is never to learn all of the laws that God has given us so that we can follow them to the T. In fact, the Jewish people tried that for a long time, and I think it was determined pretty conclusively no one's capable of coming up to the line and measuring up. It's not one person who's capable of following the law and being perfect. 
except God, who was born in man's flesh, that he might become a propitiation for our own sins. The reason we study God's Word isn't so that we would have an understanding of all of these rules and everything that we need to know. The reason we study God's Word is so that we can be transformed, so that real change would take place. We don't go forward living a Christian life so that we can follow a legalistic set of standards, but instead that we might embrace the grace that God has given us to be able to worship Him the way that He's called us to worship Him. As we think on these things this morning, I'll invite our, our worship team to come up. And This is an opportunity for you as a church to think about how we should respond to God's Word and this message, to reflect on it, because it isn't just enough to study it. It has to have implications and actions in our life. So this is a time for you to think about what's your application. Think about how you'd like to respond. And if you need to come forward and speak with me, I'm here. If you need to pray and you want somebody to pray with you, you can come up here.